0: Thank you, Stephen and Melissa Endries, for that. What a wonderful reminder. Let's take our Bibles together. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're actually going to turn to Matthew 28. If you're in first through third grade and you'd like to slip out to our children's church at this time, then you can. Go right out those doors, head to the back, and parents will pick them up right afterwards. Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be this morning. If somebody were to come up and ask you this question, how is your God different than my God? Perhaps they would worship Buddha or maybe Allah. How is your God different? How is your God distinct from the God that I worship? How would you respond to that? We can ask the question this way, what is the core distinction between the God of the Bible and all other gods of all other false religions and all other cults of Christian offshoots? What is the core distinction between the God of the Bible and all those other little g-gods? We'll ask you yet one more way before we answer the question. What is the main biblical truth that sets Yahweh, the God of the Bible, apart from every other God that the children of Israel came in contact with? And when I say every other God, I'm using that in a little G form. And the answer to this question is that the God of the Bible, the great I Am, Yahweh, is a triune God we use the word Trinity. A couple years ago, we offered a Bible Institute class called the Trinity. Many of you have heard that phrase before. Triune Trinity. It's also called the triunity of God. All interchangeable. As we work through this series on the attributes of God, last week dealing with the holiness of God, the visible um, explosion of God's attributes into creation, before we can launch into looking at individual attributes, there's one more foundational truth that we need to deal with and that is the triunity of God or God as Trinity. Trinity. Many people approach this topic of the Trinity with the mindset of God is beyond my comprehension, so I can never understand this, so I might as well not even try. What is the Trinity? I don't know. God's beyond our comprehension. It's three in one. That's all we know. But I'd like to argue this morning that you need far more than that in order to effectively and personally worship the God of the Bible. Maybe there's some in here, as Michael Reeves would say, that studying the Trinity should be left and reserved for pasty-faced theologians who are socially awkward because they're stuck in a library reading somewhere all the time. Right? Like Pastor Ben. (laughs) Friend, listen carefully this morning. It is a true statement that our holy... Infinite, eternal God is incomprehensible. But it is just as true that this God is also knowable. God has revealed himself to us in Scripture, and we need to do our absolute best and work our absolute hardest to understand who he is through his word. The most important thing in your life is that you get God right. It's not enough to worship God. You must worship the right God. It's not enough just to believe in God, friends. You must have your belief in the right God. And so the most important thing in your life is that you get God right. You can't afford eternally To get God wrong. So where do I learn about this God? Psalm 19 tells me that I can look around me to nature to see God's glory on display. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies reveal His handiwork. Romans chapter 2 tells me that I can even look to my own conscience and my my moral compass to understand that I have the very nature of God inscribed on my heart. I have the law of God because I'm created in the image of God. But if the only thing that I know about God is what I see in nature and what I see in my own heart, friends, I'm going to get it wrong. And so we must look to God's revealed word to make sure that we get the nature of God right because God's word reveals God's nature. That is the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is not a handbook for your life. The Bible is not a guidebook to make sure that you live the best life you, you can. The Bible is a letter written to you by a holy God that reveals himself. And so when we read the Bible, the question we should always be asking is, what does this tell me? What does this show me about who my God is? Therefore, with a careful study of the Word of God, we can understand who God is. The nature of God. The essence of God. This doesn't mean that we don't have some tensions that we hold in our minds because God is incomprehensible, but we have the responsibility as God's children to recognize that the transcendence and the incomprehensibility of God should not be used as an excuse for biblical illiteracy. It should not be used as an excuse to say, we'll leave that up to the professionals. I'm just a normal Christian. Because the most important thing about you is what you know to be true about God. I believe as we look deeply into the character of God in this way this morning, you will realize that the nature, the study of the nature of the triune God drives our heart to love and worship. Church Father Augustine said it this way, in the case of of those who would inquire into the unity of the Trinity, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. And so what I would like to show you this morning is of immense spiritual profit for your soul. It guides your worship. It helps you understand this God who has saved you. But before we look into the details of what the Trinity is, we must ask this question, and that is, how important is the trinity to our theology. Pastor Joe, are you talking about, I mean, it kind of seems like you're talking about something that's on the far reaches of the human mind. This is something that, you know, I I don't know that I'll be able to understand, so I might as well just check out. I'm here, I'm not even a Christian. I've kind of been looking at this whole Christianity thing. I've been observing it from a distance. Are you talking about something that's actually important this morning? I like to ask questions different ways and so maybe you could ask the question this way why would i spend an entire message devoted to understanding the topic the concept of the triunity of god correctly because without getting the nature of god right from the beginning you cannot get his attributes right A rejection of the biblical nature of God is a rejection of God himself and results in eternal punishment. Because the trinity, the triunity of God is the heart of the Christian faith. There is no Christian faith without it. In order to understand how important this is, I'd like to give you an illustration. Christians offer refer to the three levels of doctrinal importance. You'll hear it referenced here from the pulpit in our Sunday school classes, in our Bible Institute classes. And we'll talk about primary, secondary, or tertiary. That means three. You could also say bottom shelf, middle shelf, top shelf. Right? In our pantry we have the things that we use all the time right where we can reach them. We open the door, and they're right there on the bottom shelf and on the middle shelf. And then there are things in the top shelf that we get every once in a while, tucked in a back corner, used for special occasions, whatever that would be. And we need to think of our theology in the same way. Our primary doctrines, our bottom shelf theology, is what you must agree on in order to be called a Christian. That which is clearly spelled out in Scripture. Bottom shelf, primary doctrines. That would be things like the deity of Christ, as was just sung about. Justification by faith in Christ alone. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of mankind. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. And we can go on and on. These are things that are clearly spelled out in Scripture that we would say, bottom shelf, if you reject this, then you're rejecting Christianity as a whole. Then on the second shelf, on the middle shelf, secondary doctrines, we would have beliefs that make our church unique. Beliefs that good brothers and sisters in Christ disagree on. Places where Christians disagree, but Things that are distinctives for church membership, because the working out of these viewpoints of Scripture affects the way that we live out the gospel. This past week, I had the wonderful privilege of uh, being a, a part of the Shepherds Conference out in California at Grace Church. There were 4,500 pastors from all over the world a part of that conference. Many pastors that I knew as we had great fellowship, heard some incredible preaching. And We're able to be an encouragement to each other, and this may be of new, this may be new information to you. But of those forty five hundred pastors, we all didn't agree on everything. I don't know if you knew that or not. In fact, there were many different denominations there. There were differing views on things like baptism. There were differing views on church membership. There were differing views on the purpose and exactly the way that the Lord's Supper functions within the church body. There were differing views on church polity, which is the way the church is organized. There were differing views on the way you should name your church. There were differing views on the way, and we we could just go on and on and on, of the different things that makes church membership unique. We would call those secondary doctrines. They're important, but they're not near as important as primary doctrines. Then there are top-shelf doctrines. Tertiary. Vague interpretations or conscience issues which we can joyfully agree to be different on and embrace our differences within our church membership. Such as eschatology. What's going to happen at the end? I don't know. I haven't been there yet. But I have an entire book of Scripture and and allusions to it throughout all of Scripture. But a lot of it is written in these poetic ways and in in ways that are difficult to understand. And so we can be different in exactly how that's going to pan out in the end, right? We'll probably get to heaven and realize we all were a little bit wrong. That's okay. There are differences in... Preferences in worship styles, or preferences on Bible versions, or preferences on things like women's head coverings, or or, or entertainment choices, and all of these different top-shelf doctrines that you can get into and you can develop some sort of preference on if you like, but when we gather together in this church based on the primary doctrines, working out the gospel in the same way agreeing to support secondary doctrines. We're different in these third-shelf doctrines, and that's okay. And so we have to ask the question, within that framework, where does the Trinity fall? Is it bottom-shelf? Is it second-shelf? Is it like, you know, we're okay to believe in the Trinity here, but my dear brother Scott Smith up the road at, you know, at Southside Baptist Church He's got his own view on the Trinity. And that's okay. And we're Christian brothers together. Is that the way this works? Is this something that we can disagree on within this church body? You're, you're welcome to have your view, and I'm going to share with you my opinion this morning. Or are we talking about something that is foundational to being a Christian? I'd like to submit to you this morning that the triune nature of God is a primary doctrine that you must embrace in order to become a Christian at all. In this doctrine, we cannot agree for someone to be different and still call themselves a Christian. Why? Because we're talking about the identity of who God is. Let's say that you went to work and, and your, your neighbor or your, your co-worker comes up and says, hey, I heard you go to Community Baptist Church. And you're like, yeah, I do. And he's, you know what? I was there on Sunday. I know you didn't see me. I was across the, I was across the auditorium. And uh, that guy got up there to preach. Pastor Joe, he's a great guy. You know, you know Pastor Joe. He's uh, 5 foot 2 inches tall. He's 120 pounds. He's obviously a tenor. And he's got nice, thick, dark hair. And you would say, I think you were at a different church. Because the person you're describing and the person that I'm describing are two different people. And there may be a community Baptist church that has a Pastor Joe that looks like that. But it's not this community Baptist church. And I'm not that Pastor Joe. I'm sure he's a great guy. And friends, when we talk about the Trinity, you can use the word God all you want, and you can use the word Jesus, and you can talk about the Holy Spirit, and we can be talking about two totally different gods. This doctrine is foundational. It is primary. It is negotiable. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, would say it this way, the doctrine of the Trinity, that is the substance, that is the ground and fundamental of all. For by this doctrine and this only is a man made a Christian. And he that has not this doctrine, his profession is not worth anything. He actually said this profession is not worth a button. But we're not in the 1600s, so we'll just say it's not worth anything. Now this does not mean that if you have an incomplete understanding of the triune nature of God that you are not saved. This means that you cannot reject the doctrine of the Trinity and be a genuine Christian. You may be here and you can say, Pastor, I've never heard the Trinity preached on, I've never heard it talked on. I, I, know that, I know that our God is three in one, or maybe that's even new information to you. I know that Jesus is God, but that's about as far as I go. But, friends, a genuine believer, when this truth is revealed, says, Yes, I believe that, and yes, I believe that, and yes, you're talking about my God. You're not talking about some other God. The God that you're describing, the God of the Bible, he's my king. He's my Lord. That's the one. And so as we get into this, I don't want you to have this weight on your conscience and your soul, like, oh, I might not be saved because I don't understand the Trinity. No, friend, as you discover the nature of this God, the question that needs to be on your heart is, is that my God? Is this God of the Bible the one that I ascribe to? Is this the doctrine that I embrace? Is this my God? Because the rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity is to reject the very nature of the God of the Bible, and to reject the God of the Bible is to bring on your just and do punishment for your sins in hell for all of eternity. So you can't miss this, friends. This isn't something that we put on the third shelf or even the second shelf. This is something that if, if the head of, uh, of a church would reject, that we would reject that man or that woman as a false teacher. And reject that congregation as something less than a church. Because this is the foundation of it all. And so it brings us to the all-important question this morning, what is the Trinity? What is the Trinity? Look with me to Matthew chapter 28. We'll begin reading in verse 16 as Jesus outlines what has been called the Great Commission And you'll see that the entire mission of God's people is anchored in the triune essence of God. Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. As is the only appropriate response to the Son of God. But some doubted To the end of the age. Fathers, we look into your word, would you grant insight, would you grant hope for one that is here that is not a Christian, would you grant faith? In your name we pray, amen. What is the Trinity? The Trinity is the biblical teaching that God is distinct in his nature to be three persons In one nature. If you're taking notes, I want to give you very specific wording because words matter. Words matter to God. They should matter to you. The Trinity is the distinct teaching that we have one God, one nature, three persons. You could say three subsistences in one essence. And in order to understand this, there are several biblical truths that we must possess in order to drive us forward. One would be that the Bible clearly reveals that there is one God. And we're going to be super clear about that this morning. How many gods are there? There is one God. And now we're going to say it like it's not time change Sunday. How many gods are there? There is one God. One God. This is the most fundamental truth for our faith. There are not two gods, there are not many gods, there are not three gods, there are not five gods. There is only one God, and you are not him. His name is Yahweh, he is the God of the Bible, revealed through the pages of Scripture. We call this monotheism. Mono, one, theism, God. Monotheism, one, God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one he is one in number he is not two he is not three he is one in simplicity meaning that he is not made up of parts like we talked about last week God is not made up of a pie with pieces God is not part this and part that God is one whole he is one in existence He is the uncaused cause. He is the life from which all other life receives its life. He is the creator of all things. He is one in existence, and he is one in supremacy. He is the preeminent one, the only pursuit worthy of your heart. He is one. This is an indisputable truth in Scripture. No other gods exist. All other gods are fake. They are imposters, frauds, fueled by Satan to try to take the rightful place of Almighty God, Yahweh the Great I Am. He is one. And as we read through the scripture, we see that this one God exists in three persons. Not three gods, not three natures. One nature, three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What is the difference, Pastor Joe, between a nature and a person? A nature is a principle of action, it is what lies fundamentally behind every action. You could say a nature is a what, a person is a who. And we don't have time to get into that metaphysical discussion this morning. If you're interested in that, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But but I think it'd be sufficient this morning to say that you need to think of nature or essence as a what. And personhood, person, subsistence as a who? As an agent, as the subject of an action. And so we see this one God... With three persons hinted at, beginning at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And the Logos, the Word, God said, let there be light. God the Father as Creator, the Holy Spirit as Creator, and Jesus as the Creator. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We see this reflected later on in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation of man. Listen carefully. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's the counsel of the Trinity. Verse 27, so God created man in his image. Three persons, one God. The foundational truth is woven all through the pages of Scripture, from the beginning all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the completion, the totality of God in the Holy Spirit through the number seven. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We see the triune nature of God acting in heaven, three persons, one essence, one nature. Now before we go any further, I want to I reference one thing, and that is that a, a, a complete dealing with this topic would, would be a presentation of God the Father as the essence of God, God the Son as the essence of God, God the Holy Spirit as the essence of God, and then an argument for the Trinity. We don't have time to do that this morning. We have, we offered a class on that, I would love to talk about that if you have questions about the individuality of each. The goal of the message this morning is to present and defend the doctrine of Scripture that you must believe, and that is that God is three in one, the conclusion of those first three arguments. Two passages that we're going to look at this morning. There are so many in Scripture we could turn to. I've, I've selected just two. One is Matthew chapter 28, where we've just seen, if you want to look there, beginning with Jesus unfolding this as the mission of the church, surrounded and founded and grounded on the doctrine of the Trinity. I want you to notice in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in a singular name. Words matter to God. Tenses matter to God. Word usage matters to God. We see Jesus arguing in the Gospels. From one of one word. To prove his deity from Psalm 110. Words matter. Baptizing them in the name. Of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. Three in one Name. All words of Scripture are inspired, every word, and it reveals to us in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 that God is one in nature and three in persons. There is one name that drives our gospel endeavors and it is the name Yahweh, the name of God. The second passage that I'd like you to, to, you to turn to this morning is back in Matthew chapter 3. We read it for our scripture reading. If you turn there with me, Matthew chapter 3, and looking at the baptism of Christ and just see how the Trinity interacts. There are two ways that we look at the nature of God, the way that God interacts with his creation and the way that God interacts with himself. You say, Pastor Joe, why is that important? Because the God of the Bible is the only God who is not dependent on his creation to exist. God does not need us. He was perfectly happy all by himself as the triune God in eternity past. Relating to each other out of love, and in Matthew chapter three, we get this little peek into how God interacts with himself. We also see it in John 17, but look at Matthew chapter three and verse 15. I'm, I'm sorry, that's, uh, let's look at uh, begin reading verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. Can you imagine as God pulls back the veil? And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him as God pours out his love through the Spirit on his Son. And a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father pouring out his pleasing love onto the Son through the Spirit referencing the atoning sacrifice that the Son will make on behalf of all mankind. All three members of the Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity at work in this pivotal and inaugural moment in the ministry of Christ, just two passages, and we could go to many more. I've got many more references that we'll go through for the rest of the message. But I want to show you two things. One is how the Trinity interacts with creation in the gospel message, that we are to accomplish the message of the gospel on this earth through the name of the triune God. And then a glimpse into heaven as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit interact with each other. And that has been going on since eternity past. And as we think of the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity, there are three terms that I want you to get right. One, co-equal. Co-equal. The Father is not more important than the Son, nor is the Son more important than the Spirit, nor is the Spirit more important than the Father and the Son. They are co-equal. The Father is not positioned above the Son, and the Son is not positioned above the Spirit. There's a, a new fascination with an unbiblical doctrine, which is not a new heresy, but an old one. It's currently repackaged in something, for those of you who you may have seen the result of it, it's called EFS, the Eternal... Um, function of subordination of Jesus, which goes something like this. Jesus submits to the Father, but yet he's equal with God. And that's a beautiful picture of how the wife should submit to the husband, and yet both are equal. And friends, it sounds really good. The problem is it's not biblical. Because in eternity past, before creation. There was no submission of the Son, and we'll see that in John chapter 17 a little bit later. That it is true, the statement of the way that God has op- has required the family to operate and the beauty of what he has orchestrated in marriage and in the family's operation is that the husband is not more valuable or worth more than the wife But yet the wife is called to align under the leadership of the husband. That is a true statement. And it is true that on this earth, the human nature of Jesus was in submission to his divine nature, and thus in submission to the will of the Father. But the Son does not have a separate will to submit to the Father. They are one. They have one will. One will. Will is a part of nature, not a part of personhood. And so the Father's will and the Son's will is the same will. And when Jesus took on a human nature, I'm going a little bit deeper this morning, but this is so important for you if, you, if you don't really understand what's happening, at least write it down or go back and listen to it later, because it's so important that the human nature of Jesus and his human will aligned under the divine will of God, and thus Jesus was in submission to the Father. But in eternity past, the Trinity was not schizophrenic with different wills. There is one will and one nature. They are co-equal. And secondly, they are co-eternal. There was not a time when the Father created the Son, nor was there a time when the Father and the Son spirated the Spirit. All three co-equal, co- eternal there has never been a time when the son of god was not and there's never a time there's never been a time when the holy spirit the spirit of god was not and there was never a time when the father was not because if there was he couldn't be called a father because he had no son because to be a father means to give life eternally to the son And so in order to be a father in eternity past, he had to have a son in eternity past. We could go on with different arguments for this, but it's very important that you understand that all three persons of the Godhead are both co-equal and co-eternal. And lastly, there is a singularity of action within them. There is nothing that the Father wills, that the Son also does not will, and that the Spirit also does not will. There is no action that one member of the Godhead takes that another does not also take because they are one and whole and complete. Remember we use that term simple, the simplicity of God, that God is one. A lot of people will think of the Trinity, and when you ask them what distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they will say what they do, and that is not the correct answer, friends. Or what they will, and that is not the correct answer. The only thing that distinguishes the Father from the Son, from the Spirit, is what makes them the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that is that the Father eternally gives life to the Son and we call that begetting. The only begotten Son of God. And the thing that makes the Spirit the Spirit is that the Father and the Son spirate the Spirit or the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son eternally. And you go... That's the incomprehensibility. Not the fact that God's three in one and I'll never understand it. No, we need to go as as far as we can to articulate this very carefully so that our ministry is lived out and our lives are lived out in accuracy before God. So that the God, when you worship, you're worshiping the right God. And if God is one in will and one in essence, that means that the Father is due your worship, and the Spirit is due your worship, and the Son is due your worship. All three members of the Godhead, all three persons. For instance, co equal, co eternal, singularity of will and action. If you are saved, It is because you have been elected by the Father, atoned for by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. There is no one whom the Father elects that the Son does not atone for and that the Spirit seals. The Trinity is not schizophrenic. It's not as though the Holy Spirit's over here and is like, Hey, here's Billy. Sorry guys, I sealed him ahead of time. And now Jesus has to pay for his sins and God's got to elect him because God looked forward on the ages of time and said, well, the Holy Spirit sealed that one. And then then Jesus decided to atone for him, so I guess I got to elect him. Or that, you know, God elects a group of people to salvation and Jesus atones for it and the Holy Spirit's over here asleep and he knows, you know, God's going to come back in an hour and he's like, now I got to go seal all these people and I got to hurry up, right? Right? Okay, who did you elect? Who did you atone for? No, 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 no. There is one will within God, and that is so important. And that's why the view of God drives everything downstream for us theology, in our theology. That will is a part of nature, and we cannot split that. He's one nature in three persons. And so at this point, you probably have in your mind all of the illustrations that have been given to you to try to explain the Trinity. God is like. There's been a lot of heresy that began with that statement. God is like water. H2O. Right? Um. Sometimes he's really cool. Sometimes he's tumultuous, solid, liquid. And then sometimes when he gets really wrathful, he turns into steam. You know, you got the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Three different ways that water can show itself. But it's all H2O the whole time. And some of you are going, oh, that's pretty good. No, it's terrible. It's a terrible illustration. Why? Because that's an old heresy called modalism that says that God is one who just shows up in three different ways. He's the Father here, He's the Son here, He's the Spirit here, but they're not three distinct persons. God is revealing Himself as a Father. God is revealing Himself as a Son. God is revealing Himself as a Spirit. We don't have time to get into all the arguments about why that's wrong, or we'd be here till two o'clock this afternoon, but just know that we must keep the persons distinct, yet one. Or how about this? We live in Notre Dame territory, right? God is like a shamrock. He's one plant with three petals. Or God is like a sandwich. I've heard this one. You've got the bread, you've got the meat, and you've got the lettuce. And please do not put any tomatoes on it, or we're going way out, of, way out of line biblically, right? Or how about this one? God is like an egg. Some of you have heard that. A shell, the white, and the yolk. But the problem is, the yolk is not the white, the white is not the shell, and the shell is not the yolk nor is the right petal, the left petal, or the center petal. And so when we try to come up with these illustrations, we end up with three different gods. When we say no, there's one God. And you say there's one egg. Yeah, but, but, but it's sectioned off. And God is, is complete. God is whole. So there is no... Don't, don't feel the need to try to illustrate what the Trinity is like. You don't need to do that. Because every time you do, you're just going to introduce heresy. And don't pretend like you haven't done it. I've done it. I've taught it. We can't go there because what we end up doing is we end up creating a God who is wrathful. And a son who is loving. And a spirit who's a red-headed stepchild that nobody really understands. Who does weird things. Right? Right? You end up with three different gods. Rather than the God of the Bible that is beyond your your comprehension but knowable. And that he is three persons but one. And so rather than illustrating, we just need to use biblical terms. And that is that God is one in nature. He is one in essence. But he has three persons or three subsistences Throughout history, the church has struggled with these truths and combating the error that comes from these truths without careful speaking. Pastor Joe, are you trying to scare me from talking about God? No, I'm trying to encourage you to talk about God correctly. And to say, friends, when we speak of who our God is, we need to be accurate and careful, which is a grave responsibility to know your Bible. church struggled in the first four centuries about the identity of Christ and through the identity of Jesus, whether he was created or uncreated, whether he was co-eternal and co-equal with God as the son, or whether he was created, whether there was a time when he was begotten or whether he was eternally begotten, the the church got together and, and hashed out all of these details, excuse me. And the carefully worded Nicene creed in 325 and the Chalcedonian creed in 451 and the Athanasian creed that came out in the 4th or 5th century, these were written. No church father has done more for the church than Athanasius in this setting. Pastor Joe, when you say creed, are you turning us Catholic? No. We are not Catholic tied to creeds but we are tied to biblical truth and so if the creed is biblical truth then yes I am tied to the creed not because it's a creed but because it's biblical truth so I have the entire Athanasian creed here in my notes I won't read it for you but I'll just read a couple of statements you kind of get what they were arguing about and what the church comes together in indexing all of scripture to pull together this statement We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. You see those very carefully worded words there? For the person of the Father is a distinct person, and the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is another, but the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet these are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being, that's essence, that's nature. One immeasurable being, one uncreated being, but three persons. You see how he's being so careful to say what Scripture says and not say what Scripture doesn't say. And he goes on, The Father is Almighty, Son is Almighty, Spirit is Almighty, yet there are not three Almighty Beings, but one Almighty Being. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit of God, yet there are not three gods, there is one God. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three Lords, there is one Lord. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably enough. You can go read it. If you, if you want something to pray over to fuel your worship, look up the Athanasian Creed and pray through that, and you might turn Pentecostal while you're praying because it fuels your heart, friend. As you, as you see the character of God on display, we must be committed to the Bible as ultimate and supreme authority for us. Everything and everyone is to be examined by Scripture. Every person, every creed, every tradition, and every writing. And then I see in creed, the Athanasian creed, the Chalcedonian creed, these have been examined by Scripture and can be counted as true. And so we insist on them as teachings loyal to the Bible. So as we close this concept of what the Trinity is, and move to application, I'd like to summarize the nature of God for you. So if you've been asleep, this is the time to wake up, okay? We worship one God. He is unified and complete. Undivided in His nature. This one God has three persons, or three subsistences. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three Co-equal, co-eternal, equally the essence of God and worthy of your worship. And so you say, Pastor Joe, that was a very boring seminary class. So what? Three applications. Number one. These will blow your mind. I, I could give you 15, but I won't. I'll give you just three. And they all start with the letter L so you can remember them, okay? The first L is the word life, life. I want you to listen carefully. The life of the Father that eternally begets the Son, inspirates the Spirit, okay? That life that eternally is giving life to the Son because that's what a father does, he gives life. That is the same life that's given to you at salvation. It's not some secondary life. It's not some life that's second best. John calls it eternal life. Do you know why you will live for eternity? Because the life you you have can never die. Do you know why you'll live with God for all of eternity? Because you share his life. That in John's first epistle, he says, when we get to heaven and we see him, we will be like him. Now, you are not God. And when you get to heaven, you will not be a little God. For there is one God. But friends, at salvation, you possess his life. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and the Spirit God dwells in you. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Romans 8.9, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him? because there is only dead in life, right? And the same life that was breathed into Christ at the moment of resurrection, the same life that's been eternally begetting God the Son. What does that mean? I have no idea, but I look forward to finding out when I get to heaven that life you have. And all you have to do is get your flesh out of the way and let that life shine forth, right? That's how we give glory to God, is that the hardest part of sanctification is tearing away the sin. It's just, it's saying, God, take away from me what doesn't look like you. Let your life be my life, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ He is a new creation. Old has passed. The new has come. Isn't that amazing? And you would know that if you didn't study the Trinity. The reason that a father is a father is that he gives life. And if he's your father, he's given you life. Number two, number one, life. Number two, lineage. Lineage. The lineage of the Father includes the Son and it includes all of His children. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right... To be called, what? The children of God. That you receive the same inheritance as Jesus. As Pastor Ben preached an amazing message several months ago. As Jesus, as your older brother, according to the book of Hebrews. That you share in his inheritance. This this word is actually really fascinating because... That word children there is the word sons. It doesn't include daughters, it includes sons. And what John is bringing out is the incredible truth that in the first century, only sons received the inheritance. But of God's children, all believers are counted as sons. And you say, Pastor Joe, I'm a lady. I don't like being called a son. That's okay. The guys that are in this room have to figure out a way to be okay with being part of the bride of Christ. And so we both have to meet in the middle (laughs) and recognize this amazing truth because words matter, don't they? Galatians 3.26 for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All believers. Galatians 4, 4-7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God did not have to bring you into his family, but he did. And you've received a new lineage. That you're counted as a child of God just like the Son. Now you're not God. And I'm going to keep saying that because you don't want to say what the Bible doesn't say. And you're not a little God. But friends, you're counted as part of the family of God. And so sitting on the throne room of heaven, if you are a believer right now, there is no judge, only a father waiting to receive you as his child. Life. Lineage. Thirdly, love. John 17, 24. Listen to this. Father, this is the high priestly prayer. Once again, a peek behind the curtain of how the Trinity interacts with itself. you call that ad intra, how, it, how, it, how the relationship of the Father is with the Son, is with the Spirit. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me, listen, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The same love that God has been pouring into the Son as a Father for all of eternity is turned towards you as his child. That you are the recipient of the same eternal, infinite love. That from eternity past the Father was loving the Son with a perfect, eternal, unchanging, infinite love. And as a child of Christ, co-heir with Jesus, that fountain of love is directed at you. And without understanding the relation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you will never understand that. And yet, when you when we get this grasp a little bit of this unbelievable nature of God. There's so much worship that's filled in your heart toward this God who saved you. Who rather than making you an object of the outpouring of his wrath has made you an object of the outpouring of his love. That rather than counting you and judging you As a child of wrath, you are counted counted as a child of Yahweh, a child of the King. Life present inside of you. Friends, aren't we blessed to be counted as children of God? Aren't we blessed to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords? The one True God? Aren't we blessed to be objects of His love? And the more you know God, the more you'll be blown away with how amazing and wonderful He is. And our hearts are filled with thankfulness and worship. Heavenly Father, we've gone deeply into Your truth this morning. I know for some this was perhaps overwhelming. For many, a deeper concept of the truth that they have embraced of God being three in one and yet not knowing how to put words to that. For others who've been on a lifetime of getting to know the knowledge of God, a time of worship and reflection. A time to say, God, thank you for your nature. Thank you that you would count us as your children, as objects of your love. Thank you for this life that you have instilled in our hearts, that you have given to us that is eternal. And I pray that our response this morning would be worship and thankfulness. And for those here who are unsaved, that you would reveal yourself to them as the only true God that they would call out to you in faith to rescue them from their sin and that they would find a Father in heaven. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you reflect on what you've heard this morning? I know it's probably like drinking through a fire hose, but would you respond in your heart and worship and reflection at the amazing God that we serve?